Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this podcast on Wagner's Tannhäuser, Maestro James Conlon discusses the opera's deepest meanings and broadest themes through an analysis of related literature, the plot, and Wagner's exquisite music. This discussion, titled Tannhäuser in the Wagnerian Universe, was recorded for LA Opera Connect's professional development series for teachers, Opera for Educators. I'm James Conlon, and today we're going to talk about Tannhäuser, the second of the Wagner music dramas. Uh, there are, of course, early works. We'll talk a little bit about that. It has a long title, and thereby hangs a long tale, as it often is with Wagner. Tannhäuser und der Sängerkrieg auf Wartburg. That's Tannhäuser, or the Singer's War on the Wartburg. This is all taking place dead center in what is modern Germany, which is a place that knew a lot of culture. It was also the seat, at least, of the beginning of the Lutheran Protestant Reformation at the time. So there's a lot of culture. Bach, Goethe, Schiller, these are some of its inhabitants. Tannhäuser, and the title is significant because there are actually two stories. And these two stories come from two separate sources and Wagner put them together. Now they blend together so well that we don't really feel that there are two stories. The first one is the story of a singer and in the old myth, he went to Venusberg and he spent time, how much time, we don't know. Mythology tells us that Venus was the goddess of love and also the goddess of eroticism. So if you go off to Venusberg, you are likely to be having a very erotic time. And so he's been totally taken in with the apparent paradise. But at a certain point, he realizes it's not the moral choice perhaps he should have made. And of course, Venus is a survivor of the pagan age. The Christians called him pagan. So he goes off to Rome. And in Rome, he begs forgiveness. And the Pope says, well, what you've done, there's no forgiveness unless, you see, I have this branch here, this staff. And until leaves blossom from this staff, you can't be forgiven. Well, that's as good as a condemnation because leaves don't usually do that. And so in the story, he goes back to Venusberg and he stays there until doomsday where presumably God himself is going to judge him. Wagner has grafted these stories on to tell a more basic tale, a tale that he needs and loves to tell. And it is the conflict between spiritual and erotic love. It's a theme that uh, inescapable in 19th century German literature. It starts out with Faust's Zwei Seelen wohnen ach in meiner Brust. Two souls are living within my breast. That's what Faust says. And, that, and what does he mean by that? He's drawn to the spiritual and he's drawn to the physical and the sensual. This tension has been going on for centuries already. And it all stems from admittedly a masculine worldview that there's a woman who is your mother and who is tender and she gives you nourishing love and maybe spiritual love. And then there's a woman who is a potential mate who is going to give you sensual love. It's very male orientated and I apologize to everybody in the modern age. There's just no way around that. And Wagner was no exception to that. 
Um, so you have this conflict, and Wagner's way of expressing this is by combining these two stories and bringing in a certain very important historical character. Tannhäuser is in Venusberg, where he is enjoying sensuous love. But his conscience bothers him. He is sated, and he is thinking about the woman he loved before he went to Venusberg. Her name is Elisabeth. And Elizabeth is based on St. Elizabeth, who was, of course, a real person and whose kind works landed her a sainthood at a certain point after her death. So, in fact, these two women in this opera, Venus and Elizabeth, represent the two poles, erotic love, spiritual love, and Tannhäuser is torn between them. The sequence starts long ago, before the opera started, with Elizabeth, but then, seduced by the Venusberg experience, Tannhäuser is in Venusberg. So he's come down on the side of the erotic. Then he will come back to the world. His old colleagues, who are singers, find him, greet him, and they lead him back to Elizabeth. And with Elizabeth, he has a reconciliation. And he, he is determined to go on his path forward, accepting spiritual love and renouncing the at least the excesses of the eroticism of Venus. And all would have been fine if, when it came time to sing at the competition, if he could only have muted his experience with Venus. But he couldn't. It came out of him without his being able to help it. And he sings this extraordinary song of Venus, by so doing, he shocks everybody in society. And so he is ejected. And where does he have to go? He goes all the way to Rome. Then he begs forgiveness. We get the same story about the Pope, the staff in his hand. Will something flower from this staff? And um, he comes back, as he does in the original story, without forgiveness. In the last act, he will not meet Elizabeth, who will have despaired by then. And she will go off and do what operatic sopranos do so well, she dies of a broken heart. He meets his friend Wolfram. Wolfram explains to him, Elizabeth is dead. And so he determines to go back to Venusberg. So it's an ABA construction. Venusberg, the real world, and again, Venusberg. But he doesn't go to Venusberg again. She makes her appearance at the end of the opera. She tries to lead him back. And instead, he has a vision of Elizabeth Tannhäuser realizes he's been redeemed, and he's been redeemed by Elizabeth's self-sacrificial love. So in other words, the conflict has been redeemed through death, something that's going to become a staple, uh, already is, in Wagner's operas, and that is the self-sacrificing woman. And it implies that the ultimate function of a woman is to sacrifice her own life to save a man and to save him from his himself, usually in his own inner conflicts. Uh, sounds sexist, and it is, but if you think it through, it is very actually more critical of the male than it would appear. The man is a mess. He's troubled. He's tormented. He doesn't know what he wants. He can't find his place in society. He hates society. He feels like an outsider. All of that, the man is in torment. And that represents, in a certain way, Wagner's soul, but also the 19th century German spirit.
And so the woman is going to redeem him from this. And so really, it's because the woman is a more evolved spirit. We're going to add one other element that Wagner is going to pick up in a later opera, and that is the discussion of what is art and what is music and what is song. We're going to have the contrast between an art form, which is the so-called Minnelide. This is the song of love, and this is related to the troubadours of the Middle Ages. Minne is an old word for love, from which minstrel, who gives sing-song of love. And we're going to have several cases of other good singers. One is Wolfram von Eschenbach, who was a real character, and Walter von der Vogelweider, another real character. And they're going to sing within the rules. Tannhäuser is going to break all the rules and erupt with this hymn to the praise of Venus. And this is what's going to rupture his relationship to his society. Wagner is telling us there's a new expulsive art. There's a new expulsive music, and I'm writing it. Wagner was everything except modest. He viewed himself in those worlds. He was revolutionizing the world with his music, with his music dramas. He's going to go into the questions of the new music later on in his life with Die Meistersinger, where the young Walter von Stolzing is going to come uneducated, unschooled, but he has something naive and natural that the older master singers and Hans Sachs, the leading master singer in particular, have not heard. The master singers react badly because they are conservative and limited. But Hans Sachs, having a sort of genius, he's another sort of Wagner-like character. He's going to recognize the new music, and he's going to help the young Walter to refine his music and to ultimately win his reward. Let's start with what precedes Tannhäuser. There are early operas, Die Feen, which is an early work, and it is basically based on the line of German Spiel opera coming through Weber. The second opera is Das Liebesverbot, the injunction against love, and it is really an Italian bel canto opera. His third opera, Rienzi, is based on the Grand Opera that came through Paris. And then there was a quantum leap. That quantum leap goes from Rienzi to the Flying Dutchman, and suddenly we see the roots in the operas coming from those sources but they are already Wagner. Now, uh, another theme that goes through all of Wagner's opera is the fate of the outsider, the Außenseiter. The outsider is most of the time a hero, and there's no question that Wagner identifies and that we are meant to identify with the sufferings of that outsider. Along with that comes a very important word in all of German literature of the 19th century, Sehnsucht, that is yearning. No yearning, very little poetry, very little opera. Somehow somebody's got to be yearning, and so somebody usually is in a Wagner opera. So let's look at the three early works, The Dutchman, Tannhäuser, and Lohengrin. The Flying Dutchman the central character, has made a deal with the devil and he is a victim and he is condemned to live and to sail forever until he can find a woman who will remain faithful to him until death. The opera takes place on that day when he comes together with the woman, Zenta, a young girl who has grown up obsessed with the mythology of the Dutchman, and she will promise herself to him she will remain faithful to death she throws herself off a cliff, and he's immediately redeemed, and they go up to heaven together. 
Nice story, but puts us through a lot in the meantime. Now, Tannhäuser is similarly uh, an outsider because he's left society to go to Venusberg. And he is also yearning. He is yearning for inner peace. And that inner peace has got to come from either spiritual sources or erotic sources. Now, what he's learned that as compelling as the erotic sources are, they are not ultimately fulfilling. So he turns to the spiritual. He has his conflict and he is eventually redeemed by the woman, by Elizabeth. And right after the third of this trilogy of works is Lohengrin. Now, Lohengrin is slightly different because Lohengrin, who is a member of the Holy Grail, of the Knights of the Grail, he actually is up there with all those knights somewhere on Mont Salvat, and he wants to become human. So he's yearning to become human. And he will become human how? A woman will do it. He will do it by marrying a woman. And he finds Elsa. Elsa has been in a crisis in society because she is a orphan and she has been manipulated. Her brother has disappeared, she believes killed. And so she needs somebody to fight for her. And the knight who appears out of nowhere from the grail is Lohengrin. He's come down because she has called him. And he also sees his own calling for hopefully redemption by becoming a full human. And she sees herself fulfilled. Now, of course, we know it doesn't have a happy ending. Elsa will make a misstep just as Eve will with Adam. And uh, Lohengrin will have to return to the grail. He will not get his redemption. And Elsa will also die of a broken heart. Briefly, I'll touch on the question of art. The minstrel characters, who are called Minisänger, which are about love, those do not mean they are small. I once had to explain that the Meistersingers, who were master singers, were not larger or better than the Minisänger. I explained, no, 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 Minna means love. So the Minisängers, Wolfram, Walter, Bitterholf. So let's transpose ourselves into Meistersinger. The Meistersingers are conventional types. And Walter comes into this society and he's got a new music. And Hans Sachs is the good father who is going to see him and help him. He is the master singer and he's going to help Walter because he recognizes in Walter the new voice, the new music. Wagner is Tannhäuser, the torment, the uh, feeling of superiority, the feeling is I know more than the rest of you because I've been to Venusberg. Meistersinger, he is both identified with Walter and with Hans Sachs. The identification with Walter, again, here's the young man who's going to revolutionize the world. Hans Sachs is the older man who understands everything, recognizes the importance of moving on in artistic history. And he is the good father. He's the good father that Wagner never had. Now I want to say a word about motives, musical motives. One hears a lot about light motifs. Those are light, meaning leading motifs throughout Wagner. The three early works, the Dutchman, Tannhäuser, Lohengrin, do not have light motifs. They do have some motives, but they are not used in the same sense yet. The Dutchman has two motives, the essential ones. The rest of the music we will hear from time to time will bring reminiscences back the turbulent sea, the sailors chorus, but essentially there are only two motifs that are recurring. And it's very, very important that one is the troubled 
and tortured outsider, the Dutchman, and the other is the redemptive woman. Now, when we get to Tannhäuser, we have a few more. We have redemption in general, and that is that is expressed by the Pilgrim's Chorus, the famous Pilgrim's Chorus. The overture starts with the Pilgrim's Chorus and will, in its uh, concert form, will end with the Pilgrim's Chorus, and the opera will end with the Pilgrim's Chorus, and it will come back several times. This is to represent the spiritual, and it is a hymn very similar to the Lutheran hymns that, of course, Wagner will have known so well and are so deeply ingrained in the German culture. Then there will be, on the other polar side of that, Venus and Venusberg. So you see, by those motives, we have set up the basic conflict. Sensual love versus spiritual love. We have a motive of repentance. The motive of repentance, incidentally, when it's all through in this opera, will disappear for decades and reemerge in the third act of Parsifal. Venusberg has a few few motives. Some of them have to do with fire, and they resemble a little bit Loga in Das Rheingold. But they are brought back as reminiscences. They are never developed. And that is the difference between a leitmotif and the motives that we are still encountering in the early operas. The early operas will play a theme, but it will repeat a theme when it's necessary or whether when it's dramatically relevant, but it doesn't develop. It doesn't develop symphonically. The leitmotifs, which will follow, will be start with the ring, those are more plastic. They're more flexible. They are shorter motives that can be combined in various ways. They can modulate. They can be distorted. They can be played one against the other in counterpoint. That's the real leitmotif. Right now, we are getting what's left over of, the, of an Italian practice of having a motive that will bring us back to an earlier event. In Lohengrin, they're going to develop, they're going to be even more motifs, but again, they're all motives of uh, recollections or of memories. Now, let's talk about the protagonists, because the protagonists in Tannhäuser are part of a longer line, and that longer line, dissimilar to the archetypes and stereotypes of Italian opera, and even in Verdi, there's a family of Wagner characters with characteristics. And Tannhäuser, let's start with Tannhäuser because he's our protagonist. And let's look at the tenors. Um, the tenor is, as it is in Italian love, very often, if there is a romantic love or sensual love, the tenor is usually going to be the one who expresses that. And so it is um, in Tannhäuser, so it will be a spiritual love in Lohengrin, but he will be in love with Elsa. Tristan, we know, of course, is a full, complete love, uh, spiritual, erotic, uh, intellectual, a perfect meeting of two beings. Again, that's Tristan. He's a hero. Walter uh, is a young, dashing uh, nobleman, and uh, of course, he's, he's a perfect lover. In the ring, Siegmund will be an extraordinary lover, Siegfried less so, and Parsifal doesn't really ever attain a union with a woman. He almost does. He gets away because he's had his own temptation with Kundrid, dressed as a seductress. But he's going to be the redeemer, and that's important. Lohengrin comes to redeem uh, and to be redeemed 
and he succeeds at neither, unfortunately. Um, Parsifal starts as a fool, and he becomes a redeemer. So uh, the tenor is that antagonist who is also the romantic leader. Now, the outsider as hero, Wagner viewed himself as a hero, and he also felt his position as outsider because he often was in life and because uh, partially he didn't understand that his behavior made it so. But as we go down the list, the Dutchman is an outsider, clear. Tannhäuser is an outsider. The next outsider we will meet is Telramund. He will not be redeemed. He will be killed for his misdeeds. Tristan becomes an outsider because he commits adultery, or at least he intends to. And he will die more or less related to his sin. Um, and Parsifal will start as an outsider, also a fool, just like Siegfried, but he will be spiritually enlightened and he will come to be a redeemer. Now, Telramund walked away from society and followed his pagan wife uh, and began to serve other gods. The Dutchman is redeemed from his diabolical curse and Tannhäuser from a diabolical obsession and attachment to the sensuality of Venus. So the redeemers are Senta, Elizabeth, and Parsifal himself. Part of the sin of Tannhäuser is to have proclaimed that unmarried sensual love is superior. Now, Wagner had a very curious theory, uh, or at least by implication, if not explicitly, an erotic love, a non-married love, an adulterous love is one step better because it's so much more exciting and, uh, and expanding. And he went another step where he steps over the most basic taboo in all societies. He actually lauds, by implication, incestuous love between brother and sister, between Sigmund and Sieglinda. And he will express himself that this is the most extraordinary, the love force that comes out of this is extraordinary because it breaks all boundaries. So that's a rather curious theory. But if you put yourself into Wagner's head, you can understand it. And that's what we're dealing with with Tannhäuser. He has stepped out of his singer colleague's experience. He's gone to Venusburg. He's experienced it all. His music is informed uh, with a passion and with an inspiration that their music is not formed by that. Now let's move to the redemptress, Elizabeth. She's the second in the, in the series. Zenta redeems the Flying Dutchman. She redeems Tannhäuser. Elsa has a double tragedy. She fails to redeem Lohengrin and allow him to become human. Tristan and Isolde both together commit adultery or at least intend to and get onto the brink of that. But they are both punished, but they will eventually die in a state of fulfillment. What have they been redeemed from? They have been redeemed from desire. And so when their desire finally extinguishes, so does their life, or vice versa. Only with death is desire extinguished. So then if we go on to the second antagonist woman, uh, we have them in various forms. They tend to be lower voices, uh, although Wagner calls most of them sopranos. Now, Venus, of course, we've discussed. Orchard still worships the pagan gods, and therefore she is an outsider. But we don't have sympathy with her, and she performs much evil. 
So here we have the roles with Venus and Ortrud as a sort of obstacles or antagonists to the main feminine redeeming figure. There's a minor one in The Flying Dutchman, that's Mari, who's the uh, who's in charge of all the women. And then there's the good companion, Brangena in Tristan, in Isolde, Isolde's maid, Magdalena, who is Eva's maid. And then we have Kundry, a very complicated character in Parsifal. Now, in Acts 1 and 3, she is a repentant, barely a woman, almost an animal. She is so uh, depleted with penance and remorse, which is almost crazed. But it, she reappears in Act 2 as the seductress of all times. She takes on, through magic, um, the character of all previous seductresses. So she's like Venus. And so... Kundry herself is a combination of Venus and, and Elizabeth, though she does not redeem because she is unable to redeem. But of course, Parsifal will redeem everyone. Now, if we go into the baritones, the Dutchman is a baritone and he is an outsider and he is tortured. And we empathize with him because of his own inner torture. It's impossible not to. He really hasn't done anything wrong, except uh, he was afraid that his ship was going to get wrecked. He made a deal with the devil, get me around this problem and I'll sail the seas. And he makes the deal. He can do that until he finds a faithful woman. We know all know the story. But the Dutchman will lead in a long way off to Amfortas, who is another baritone who is by then an outsider and who suffers. And we experience his, his suffering with him. The next baritone is actually evil, or he's become evil. And that's Telramund. He, he is like Klingzor, another baritone in Parzival, who was, Klingzor was a member of the Grail, and like fallen angels, he's, uh, he's stepped out of that society. Telramund was a noble and a noble man. And through the uh, machinations of his wife, he has been drawn into a wicked role from his wife, who is, of course, still a, a pagan. Um, other baritones are not antagonists. Wolfram is the friend of, uh, of Tannhäuser. Uh, Corvanal is the friend of Tristan. The leading baritone after Hans Sachs in Meistersinger's Beckmesser, he's an antagonist, but of course he's a comic antagonist. And so uh, the baritone usually, after the Dutchman, is never again the central uh, protagonist. He's never against the central outsider. We've talked often about the role of the bass in Italian opera. It's the father, the grandfather, the priest, the pope, the grand inquisitor. It's Or it's a man who is evil. Wagner has reserved a more benign role for the basses. Not that they're perfect, but they are basically good. In Tannhäuser, the Landgraf, and that is a kind of, uh, that's like a duke for, in the Holy Roman Empire, is the uncle of Elizabeth, and he is basically also the leader of the people, and he is a good and benevolent leader. King Heinrich, who will be the next base, who will be in Lohengrin, he is also a goodly leader. Going back to the flying Dutchman, Dalant is the father of Zenta. He's not malevolent, but he is self-centered. He's not quite as enlightened as the other ones. He's a merchant, and he's trying to make a good deal. 
And our next base is going to be King Mark. King Mark will take his older, become his wife, but his young friend Tristan betrays him. King Mark, however, is benevolent and remains so. Uh, then we meet Pogner, who is the father of Eva, and um, he is one of the merchants of Nuremberg and one of the sponsor. He will give his daughter to whoever wins the competition. So once again, a good character. Now, I'm skipping over the ring, you can see in all this, because the ring has a totally different system. But we'll meet two very, very dark, evil characters along the way who are bases. The first one is Hunding in Die Valkyrie, and the next one is Hagen in Die Götterdämmerung. And then finally, in Parsifal, we never see him, but the patriarch is Titurel. He is a base. He has, uh, he's abdicated to his son, Amfortas, but Titurel is basically good, but we never see him. Minor roles who are simple people who sing songs, the Steuermann in The Flying Dutchman. We have a shepherd in Tannhäuser. Uh, we're going to have a seaman who is going to sing, and then there's going to be a shepherd who plays pipes. This is another line that goes through Wagner. Now let's look at the knights in Tannhäuser. And again, all of these are historical characters. Wolfram von Eschenbach, Walter von der Vogelweiter, Bitterolf, Reinmar von Zetner. These are characters who fit into a sort of a group. They're slightly homogenous. The only one who stands out a little bit is Wolfram, because Wolfram is a companion to Elizabeth. He, in fact, is in love with Elizabeth, but it is a pure, chaste love worthy of the minstrels. They will not be well-defined one from another. They react as a group. They are undifferentiated, a little bit like the Meister singers will be later on. Now, the role of the chorus is still important in Tannhäuser. Wagner will articulate his viewpoint that he doesn't like writing for choruses because you can't understand them. It doesn't make sense. Why should everybody sing the same music and the same words? He's going to prefer dialogues, and we're going to see that come into its own in the ring. The ring will be virtually without chorus, except for the second act of Die Götterdämmerung. Well, Wagner didn't always do what he preached, but he did come from a very robust composer for the chorus. The Flying Dutchman is replete, and the third act, of course, is an amazing virtuosic feat for the chorus of seamen and the chorus of the Norwegian women. In Tannhäuser, the chorus will be the pilgrims who come and go, and they will also be all the people who are attending the court for the singer competition. They will also, not seen but heard, be sirens in the first act in Venusberg, and they will also be a redemptive chorus, probably from heaven, in the last act. Now, Lohengrin is going to have almost more chorus than everything else. But then he's finished. Then he goes to the ring. And the chorus never really comes back in a major way until Meistersinger. And there, of course, it is, especially in the third act, where it's the people, all of the, uh, the guilds, all of the workers, all of the master singers, everybody all together. In Parsifal, the chorus will play an important role again. Now, another small element we should talk about is the processional. Wagner liked grandiose, solemn entrances by a large group of people. Now, naturally, it has to go with a large group, and therefore it usually goes with the chorus. 
Now, where's the root for all of this is in Rienzi, which is a very long opera, uh, over four hours of music, and it's uh, replete with processions in and out and in and out and in and out. Well, when we get to Tannhäuser, we have a significant one in Act Two, where we have the entrance of everybody into the Wartburg Castle and into the singer competition. And we'll have a majestic procession in the second act of Lohengrin going to the church to celebrate Lohengrin's marriage to Elsa. Now, when we're all done with that, there's not going to be any processions at all, except for the one in Goethe-Demmerung. And again, it's the same scene as Lohengrin, the proceeding to the church only to be disturbed by a negative element. Too complicated to explain at this particular time. Um, and then, of course, we'll get very important processions in Acts 1 and Act 3 of Parsifal. The first important motive is the spiritual, the Pilgrim's Chorus. And here it is played at the beginning of the prelude. That's the quiet version. And now you'll hear the full triumphant version. Now, the other center of motives come from Venus. Coming out of the viola section, we rise up into a high sphere. We can hear that the music is now in a high register with violins, tremolos, trembling, flutes, trills. This is all the glowing fire of metaphoric passion. And it's also going to be the fire of hell, which will be the punishment for those who experience that passion. There is a yearning theme in there, which is not completely unrelated to the penance theme. This is a forerunner of Tristan. So you'll hear all of that together. But all in all, it's a very lively music and therefore very seductive and is making Venus, the character, attractive to us.
this is another important Venus motive. She calls to her lover and she says, Geliebte, beloved, come. She wraps herself in a mothering posture. And that is part of the siren seduction to represent the mother to the male as she seduces him. Now we know it is not real redemption, but it will look like redemption to the victim of that seduction. still from the first scene in Venusberg, Tannhäuser's hymn in praise of Venus. And this is very important. We'll hear it several times. And of course, this is what he will burst out with in the midst of the singing competition in Act Two, which will offend everyone in society. For our purposes now, it is a magnificent praise of the goddess. I want to finish off by reading a short quotation from Isaiah Berlin, The Roots of Romanticism. There is an optimistic version of romanticism in which the romantics field is that by going forward, by expanding our nature, by destroying the obstacles in our path, we liberate ourselves and allowing our infinite nature to soar to greater heights and to becoming wider, deeper, freer, vital, more like the divinity towards which it strives. But there is another more pessimistic version of this, a notion that although we individuals seek to liberate ourselves, there is something in the dark depths of the unconscious or of our history which frustrates our deepest desires. Wagner's Tannhäuser expresses all of that. Neither Tannhäuser nor Elizabeth triumph. And yet they have both expanded themselves through the deep experience of their humanity, be it passionate, erotic, or spiritual. And that's what I think Wagner wants to leave us with. So thank you for sharing all of this with me, and I'll look forward to the next time. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.